Okay, mine started recording. Oh, <laughs> okay, I'll start recording. It's, it wants me to tell you um, that it, I'm recording. It tells me to avoid any legal snags <laughs> by letting you know that I'm recording. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. In Arizona, you can record somebody without their knowledge. Mm. So that's just good to know when you're in this state. <laughs> There's so many good things. <laughs> Remember when you told me about criminal speeding? I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. Okay. So I wanted to start by doing a check-in. I used to do these with Cynthia and Sotobronas, and I feel like they were a good way for me to share my legal journey with people mm-hmm. who are interested in becoming lawyers. So I wanted to reintegrate that into the episodes and wanted to ask how you are, what your stress level is this week, and what you're doing to take care of yourself in the upcoming week. Great. I love these questions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I'm doing good. Stress level is actually pretty high. Um, As you know, I canceled this recording. Yeah, approximately three times. Yeah. Filing due the next day, every time. (laughs) Yeah, I had a filing. Yeah, I finished it today. So this was part of my self-care was actually doing this and getting to talk to you. Oh, that's really sweet. But But for labor, so thank you for giving me your labor. No, it was great. And the the other thing that I was going to say is that it was my birthday last weekend. And so for this weekend, I'm going to go with a friend to a spa up here in Northern California to celebrate. that's fun. So it's like the perfect week, actually. Oh, wait, are you a Capricorn? Aquarius. Aquarius. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that you're going to a spa. I think that's really good, especially after the week that you had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you? How are you doing? Um, I'm good. I there, I have a new supervisor in the Tucson office that I'm in, mm-hmm. which is nice because before I was the only one. <laughs> and now I have somebody who I can bounce ideas off of and like, just it's nice to have a presence in the office and just someone to hang out with yeah I agree, <laughs> not, I agree. not hang out with but you know just company do our, do our work collaboratively exactly no it's it's needed yeah yeah well especially since I'm brand new <laughs> well, okay here. any self-care for you Oh, fuck. This is so typical me. Like, (laughs) I'm like tweeting about work-life balance. And then I'm like working all day on a Saturday. I'm giving my business cards away. They have my cell phone on it. I'm a clown. (laughs) (laughs) My self-care for this upcoming week. You know what? Actually, I should schedule massages because I told Joseph that I was going to get us a couple's massage as his Christmas present, oh, yeah. like part of his part of his Christmas present, and I haven't even booked it yet, and it's like February, so <laughs> I should do that. You have one more day in January. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Heavy. Oh my god, I didn't look up how to pronounce his name. Casey, I think. Casey? Okay. Casey. Um, yeah. Casey. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. Lehman. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and it's a memoir that he wrote. Uh, I really loved reading it. I thought it was written really beautifully. The title of the book refers to a lot of different kinds of quote unquote heaviness. Mm -hmm. He literally talks about his, the struggles that he has with his weight. I've noted that on page 46, he, he describes being hurt knowing that his mom was hitting his fat black body as hard as she could. Well, you know, like looking at his body and, and hitting it as hard as she could. His complicated relationship to his mother. Uh, on that same page, he says, I wish you had picked one kind of touch that would have been less confusing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. His fraught relationship with students, mm-hmm. <laughs> child, <laughs> child sexual abuse right. and racism. One of the more poignant quotes that I read was him saying, I knew if white people were getting beaten in their homes, it wasn't because of what black people thought. Because there was a time where he did something that upset a white person. Yeah, in school when he was little, right? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you what types of heaviness did you see in the memoir? Yeah, I thought, like, like you said, the way that he wrote it was actually really beautiful. And like talking about the ways people write, I liked that he was writing to a black audience. So, so like he wasn't writing for a white gaze re- at all. I felt like, and so just the words and the way he wrote, I also thought there was a lot of heaviness in there. Just for example, like when we are talking about some of the sexual violence that he actually talks about, he yeah. doesn't like, super describe it, but you know exactly what's happening in mm-hmm. in so many different situations. So I felt like the topics are heavy, the words, the way that he's like not fully explaining things is heavy. It almost hits harder because you're like forced to think about it mm-hmm. and yeah also, well, I also yeah. appreciate that because it doesn't sensationalize mm-hmm. hurt like mm-hmm. I think you know thinking about the immigration detention context white people love seeing little brown girls crying because they're separated right. from their mom like there mm-hmm. is this kind of trauma porn and being interested in like the morbid details of something whereas like yeah like I think what you're saying is he did it in a more elegant way, in a more respectful way, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And yeah, I think, I mean, we could get into like, this thing is like, I feel like this is one of those things you could also read multiple times and just see different things. Cause yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and like, so I'm like, I told you this before we got on was just like, I don't even know where to start. There's just so much. And even with his relationship with his body, I think as a, as a, like a cis woman, I think about my body a lot or you know yeah. what I'm saying? And I didn't yeah. really understand or appreciate how men do too. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. So that was that was interesting for me to yeah. to read too about the way that he dealt with his weight and yeah. Yeah, that was something that he kind of really talked about in depth. Like he shared how he used controlling his weight as like an emotional coping mechanism. Like he would run six miles a day in the morning and at night mm-hmm. because he had been ashamed of his younger body when he was a child and an adolescent being fat. And and, and I think when he was describing it too, wasn't he saying that he was, I don't recall if he was saying that he was trying to erase himself or like yeah. minimize presence. 
Yeah, he said something like, it was like a way of control, like you said, like coping. And he yeah. was talking about like, I was able, kind of like he was able to take control. Like I was able to erase myself. I was able to erase my body. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like when he wasn't feeling secure about who he was and trying to, I think in that part, um, he was still in college or, or just like leaving it um, when he was starting to do that. And so he was, I felt like he w- didn't really know his place and was like trying to, that's what it, I felt like when he wasn't in control of his surroundings, he was like, okay, I can, I'm going to control this a lot. Yeah which I think is really relatable. And Mm -hmm. I respected that he wrote about it so honestly. Super honest. Yeah. What kind of in that same vein, what I appreciated about the book is that it's a really poetic laying out of his various internal struggles. And I appreciated that it wasn't like a self-help guide or, you know, and he doesn't claim to like provide solutions to these systems of oppression that we live with. Mm -hmm. And he just lays out his thought processes, how he processes it and how he responds to patriarchy, to anti-blackness, to fat phobia. And I really appreciated that because I think it's so important for people who are dealing with some of the things that he writes about, especially like his own child sexual abuse. You know, like he wrote on page 59 that, be what dreaming about stuff that scare me mm-hmm. and you know I think being transparent about these complicated fraught feelings that you don't even understand yourself yeah is something so important that people who have gone through that can relate to yeah you know and I I, I just appreciated it because it's like it wasn't trite no. it's, it's like you're just sitting with the heaviness of it yeah yeah definitely and I think like getting to that about he's not he's not he's not doing a self-help guide and he kind of tells you in the I think the beginning and in the end of the book starts out with saying like I yeah. wanted to write a lie mm-hmm. and you wanted to read it mm-hmm. and I wrote this instead so he's just right from the beginning he's telling you this is going to be real <laughs> this is going to be hard to grapple with and I think whenever we talk like you're talking about the child sexual abuse and whenever we talked about sexuality or sexual violence when he writes about it in this book a lot of it is about fear mm-hmm. I think that is a lot of I related to that just where like they don't want to talk to you about sex. I'm saying like your parents or whoever raised you. And so it does automatically build fear around it. And then and despite yes, or mom, like, feelings of yeah. shame too, because mm-hmm. you can't bring it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And like his mom obviously was like trying to protect him. It's funny too. I yeah. think what she focuses on protecting him from what system of oppression she'll focus on and then didn't at all touch on the other systems of oppression that he's complicit in or that he will be hurt from and so that was another and I think a lot of our parents especially with generational trauma grandparents it gets funny what they decide to focus and protect you on or talk to you about yeah that was something I wanted to ask you about is what you thought about his mom and how she parented him she would always sing this refrain that was like you need to be excellent, you need to be twice as excellent as white people, and you need to 
be polite and be disciplined. And kind of that was the mantra that she would give to him and just wanted to. And then also she, I think she demonstrated a lot of like quote unquote tough love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot to unpack in that idea of tough love and how it's only applied to people of color ever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I think that was a lot. I think obviously I'm going to psychoanalyze his mom and so I don't really know her. (laughs) Um, So I'll just give that caveat. But but I thought I, this is like what I was saying was interesting too. Obviously, the, his grandma went through a lot of things, and his grandma was just really. I think his mom says this at some point, like kind of like she was just trying to be alive. Mm. Being alive wasn't like given to her, and she just needed to get a job, so she'd take whatever any job she could get. And then his mom, it like comes to these oppressions of basically racism, and is like, oh, I need to take a political lens, and that's like how we'll free ourselves. And then, so she raises him from just political lens of like, you know, you're just as good as them kind of thing. And so she's like trying to protect him. You're better than them kind of thing. And she's like trying to instill that in him. Yeah, she tells him not to internalize what white people think of him. Yeah. And so I think she does, like, she's trying to instill that in him. And like, to her, that's the biggest threat. But the but his mom, like, also doesn't see the that she also needs to give in her personal love. And I think it's like... Yeah, so it's just, it's so, I think it's so hard because she's, like, trying to do her best and obviously you feel for her because, like, she's she's trying to raise a, a black boy in the South and she knows that, like, just him being alive is dangerous for him, just, like, who he is. Right. And it's, like, the tough love, tough love thing that you said is, like, that she thinks that she is doing what's best for him by, like, beating him and, like, everybody's, like, oh, your mama don't play because she's like I'm gonna if I beat you then maybe you will know better and you won't go get arrested by the cops or something like that but yeah she like doesn't she like picks what oppression she like picks to discuss or maybe not picks but is the one that she is more to take on yeah Mm -hmm. yeah exactly Yeah. yeah and I think I've heard many black folks talk about how growing up their mom pretty early on in their childhood sat them down and did have a talk about mm-hmm interactions with police and how to conduct yourself around police and I think that his mom being a black woman growing up in Mississippi in particular Mm -hmm. knew that she had to instill in him that state violence was real and could affect him yeah like she told him that the Jackson police work for Ronald Reagan and the devil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, but like, she would say, and he where's the lie? Excellent mm-hmm. In order to avoid violent interactions with the state. And it, I get, and it's like, I'm not a mother yeah. and I'm not black. So I can't speak to the quote unquote right way no. to approach it. But the, in this conversation about tough love, Also, I think I'm reminded of charter schools Mm -hmm. and this idea that the way that we're going to close the education gap is by treating black and brown students in a military-like way and just having them do like rote memorization exercises Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and being really submissive to authority. And I just like, you know, cutting out like, creative thinking like yeah. are you know in favor of these core subjects that are tested and mm-hmm. arbitrarily mm-hmm. deemed valuable 
Mm-hmm. And like it's like only people of color go through that. And I think he also talked, like, do you remember him talking about Coach Schitzler? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Oh, my God. I was triggered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Reading about this, like, so this is on page 111. Mm-hmm. He said, this is a teacher that he had in high school. I understood for the first time. No, I just marked it off right here, too. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my, yeah, right? Yeah. I understood for the first time that day how Coach Schitzler, just like most of the grown black men I knew, mm-hmm. wanted to set people's brains on fire before situating himself as the only one who could calm the blaze. He wanted us to praise him for his tough love, which was really a way of encouraging students to thank him for not hurting us as much as he could. I've for sure had this experience with quote unquote mentors of color who have this tough love mentality and who honestly just justify emotionally abusive behavior. Yeah. 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 And I think, yeah, exactly what you're saying is right. Because it's honestly for the coach, it's like a form of insecurity. And like, who does he have power over? It's these students. And so, yeah, yeah, it's like, okay, I'm going to tear you down so that like, I'm the only person that can build you up or it shows how good I am. He couldn't get get away with that with like the white students, you know, like, so he's using it on the black students. But then he's like, look, I'm just trying to make you better. I'm trying to improve your logic. And, like, trying to pretend that, like, oh, yeah, this is... But it really it's just a way to make them feel better. Right. And I did like how Casey's K- mom was like, don't internalize that. He's trying to make you... This person has internalized stuff. This person is insecure. Don't, don't let him make you internalize that. Yeah. I also thought it, it was so valuable for... K- is it Casey? I think it's Casey, but I'm not sure. Casey? Okay. <laughs> I liked how... Also, sorry. While we're... Sorry... Mr. Lamont for messing up your name but while we're on that subject whenever a white person would say his name <laughs> he wrote it Kesey did you notice that so like he changed yeah. his name whenever it was like a white person saying it just to say like um, they could never I feel like this was what he was saying like oh they got my name wrong or like they have like that they said it right, right. <laughs> yeah. I just appreciated that from him yeah well I think that's an example of how he's writing for black people and he like is very literally says that and follows the advice of Margaret Walker, who says, like, you need to write for your people. And to them. Mm-hmm. And to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. How there are, there are, like, mentors of color who will do that to you, too. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's like, a hazing thing. It's, like, this happens yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's just so old and so tired. If you've navigated this world as a person of color, I just feel like if you've really sat and thought about it, you would realize that actually your mentees need someone to be gentle with them mm-hmm. because the world the world is so tough on them. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I think honesty is important. That's where, sorry, we're bringing up another, uh, I was going to say character, but it's a real person in his life. It's like his really good friend, Ray, who was like the super senior at college. He was gentle with him. And, but he also told him, Hey, I'm seeing that you're having these really bad behaviors and you're not taking care of yourself. So yeah, I think mentors could be a good thing too, if they are honest with you, but not to like, I mean, of course. (laughs) Yeah. But put somebody down to make them feel better. And I'm not sure that they're doing it consciously, but yeah mm-hmm. anyways my two cents 
going back to the topic of racism more explicitly, mm-hmm. he said at one point, I never understood how surviving was our collective superpower when white folk made sure so mm-hmm. many of us didn't survive. Mm-hmm. And those of us who did survive practiced bending so much that breaking seems inevitable. Do you relate to the idea of needing to bend in the context of white supremacy? Shit. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Like, sucks because I want to say no, but I totally forgot about this part that he wrote, and it was really powerful, the part that you, you just talked about, about bending for white supremacy. It is really powerful. He kind of uses the metaphor of, like, bending a lot in the book. Towards the end, too, I think he says he wants to put his mom where he bends. And so in that way, it kind of feels like, I think he's like trying to say like he's trying to protect his mom and bring her into his vulnerable part of his self, but he always hides that from her. And then, but in this part, his bending is more, his going out of the way to overcompensate, not overcompensate actually, I mean more like make, yeah, live in this. It's respectability politics. Yeah, exactly. Respectability politics. I mean, because I, I think that's grating on you. Like if you, if you are somebody that grew up culturally Latinx and you are first gen especially and you're integrating into a white collar work world that is a culture created by white people mm-hmm. then no I was just gonna say yeah yeah you you will experience pushback if mm-hmm. you don't conform to the mannerisms that they expect from right. a white person <laughs> right yeah no I was I was actually when you said that question I, and the way that you posed it was like, do you like feel yourself bending to like that sometimes? And that's why I said, I was like, shit, because that's what basically you have to do in court. Right. <laughs> and you have to do it because, oh my you know, God. like if this white judge doesn't feel like you're putting enough respect <laughs> on it for them and like you're kind of like, you know, super deferential, it could hurt your client. And so, <laughs> yeah, so like, I think that's like the hardest part. And I've actually, before you, before you suggested we read this memoir, I was talking about how I wish I could write in briefs the way I talked and, and like mm-hmm. not have to code switch all the way to like this super formal way that they want you to speak in, in court, but really just call out how ridiculous things are and the way I want to talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I and then the reason why I was bringing that up to this memoir is just like, the way that he wrote, there wasn't that need for code switching, but it was still, he was really able to like, convey all his thoughts and it was really, really well written, really well done and like everything like that. And I was like, I wish I could write how I, how I thought. <laughs> court. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why I find those, those are the parts of legal profession that I find restricting and confining and that's why if I am going to remain in the profession I think having this podcast as an outlet is going to remain essential yeah I just it just it just internally die having to do all these dumbass things all right mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> the other day I was thinking about that like, like who does that that is so what other in what <laughs> other profession is that kind of authority wielded like that is wild <laughs> like everyone has to get up and then they're like oh sit down sit down <laughs> right i was i was literally just thinking about that the other day topics what I appreciated about this memoir is he sees honesty about 
his own participation mm-hmm. in misogyny and misogynoir. Mm-hmm. In the beginning of the book, he writes, on page 16, he mm-hmm. writes, I was taught by big boys who were taught by big boys who were taught by big boys mm-hmm. that black girls would be okay no matter what we did to them. Yeah. And he explained that, quote, running a train got you respect among young black boys in Jackson. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to ask you, what example did you see of him calling himself out? Yeah, I thought he did a good job about this. And something that he says throughout the book, and I think it's actually super important, is he keeps, whenever he does call himself out about specifically misogynoir or misogyny, he says, but I was a good dude. So he's kind of saying, yeah, I wasn't the person in the room running train. I wasn't, I was afraid of hurting women and I, and I didn't do things. Or like, I didn't, basically he's saying I didn't rape anybody. But he's mm-hmm. like, why is that the standard? And, and he always says, but everybody thought I was a good dude because I wasn't doing that. And that was such a low standard because he called himself out for manipulating women, lying to his mom, lying to his, I don't know, his girlfriend, if we want to call her that. Yeah, so he does talk about how he did use women and manipulate women and lie to women. And, and I'm almost defending myself here when I list those things off because, yeah, it wasn't as bad as what he was seeing around him. But it, it was definitely misogyny. And I see him, I do see him calling himself out about it a lot. And always being like, but people thought, think of me as a good dude. Like, I'm a good dude. And like, that's how low the bar is for men right now. (laughs) Yeah. I also think it reminds me of the importance of holding nuance and Mm -hmm. holding space for complexity. Because Mm -hmm. if you are an abolitionist, you have to be committed to an accountability process. And you can't treat people as disposable. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is why I, I talk about being opposed to cancel culture. I know there's a whole complex thing about cancel culture and whose voices get magnified and amplified. And also policing, tone policing is whack. It's complicated, but also like, mm-hmm. I, the, I think the idea of cancel culture, like the idea that somebody did something wrong and that's it forever. Yeah, no, it's it, ridiculous. Yeah. It's really, it's problematic because yeah. we're not going to be able to have a world without prisons if we don't let go of the idea that we have to hold space for an accountability process that involves the perpetrator of violence. Yeah, I agree. And and we're all still learning and growing and evolving and changing. Right. And like, I think, Casey's a good example he's like yeah I wasn't taught this stuff I didn't I felt it he always says like I always knew and I felt this was deeply wrong um but then like you know when he starts to get the tools to talk about it and I think he's the type of person that can reach out to other people who might not have learned or or been taught were taught by big boys or like whatever a certain way and if we have cancel culture and you're afraid to admit oh that happened to me too or I did that before I knew this you're going to be too afraid to ask questions and we know when there's no information or people can't ask questions they just keep perpetuating things like this in the dark and you're not going to be able to teach others and admit oh I, I used to have this misconception or I used to think that and so it just just makes you be quiet instead of instead of learning and growing and evolving you have to be okay with making a mistake or seeing other people make a mistake for that to really happen right mm-hmm. I thought he did a good job of threading that really difficult line of demonstrating how patriarchy negatively impacts men too. Mm -hmm. When he was talking about hearing many squeaks and grunts coming from Daryl's room Mm -hmm. and wanting to die. I think that's really important given how society depicts masculinity and men like male affinity for sex in all contexts, no matter what. And Mm -hmm. this 
as a result, this refusal to recognize that men and men of color can can be sexually abused, mm-hmm. which is, I know, a really basic thing, but there are people yeah. who haven't fully accepted that. And mm-hmm. so, but also I thought he did a good job of calling himself out, which is really important. I really appreciated that he was, yeah, I was I was protesting uh, Obama's My Brother's Keeper program. And also I was being <laughs> violent to women. Mm-hmm. right and like that's what I'm saying cancel culture can't work because it's- oh yeah totally yeah I'm sure yeah, I'm sure I'm like hypocritical in so many different ways in my life <laughs> and like if, well, just, yeah. yeah you know like mm-hmm. not on purpose but I'm sure like right well it's just difficult to navigate the world ethically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's no ethical consumption under capitalism exactly yeah so choices we have to navigate yeah but no, I thought he did a, a really good job of like threading that line, like you said. Yeah, just being like, how complicit am I in this? And like, where can I make a, a difference? Even I think when he was at the party, and I, it sounds like basically this is one of those incidents where you have to read into it, where the, his friend, she disclosed all this. I think her name was Kamala, actually. Like she disclosed all this abuse or something that she had gone through. And he doesn't say what. I, and that's funny because he promises not to tell anybody so that's probably why he doesn't say what in the, oh, yeah. in the book either but so he so then she was like but he was fake being drunk because he wanted to fit in but he was afraid of drinking cause uh, he felt like he, he didn't want to hurt anybody if he got too crazy or too drunk or anything and so she promises like oh yeah I won't even tell anybody that you're faking it because obviously it's really weird to fake being drunk at a party <laughs> and then but, but he walks out of the room and then so this other boy is like oh hey basically did you have sex with her and then he just kind of leaves it up to the imagination he's like what do you think bro and so like yeah. he's yeah so he's like still complicit in this thing where men are competing for like oh who's having the most sex who's the machista the way of being of being like who can have like the most women and like bragging about it that's still not something he would give up even though he did a really nice thing and like listened to his friend yeah so yeah yeah, those ways that you can be both complicit and also I also found it really powerful that the book is a long letter to his mother Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially because there are serious stigmas around child sexual abuse that makes it so that some kids are never able to talk to their parents about that Mm -hmm. and he wrote a public book about it and Mm -hmm. I think going back to what Margaret Walker said about writing for your people and to your people I also Mm -hmm. think that it's a really radical act of healing that it is a letter his writing the book is the act of putting his mother where he'd been yeah yeah it was not only just like an incredible literary device or way of reading it but it was also super powerful like you said and super brave I can't imagine yeah I really can't imagine writing that out but he did it and yeah he kind of did he did it reasons that I think you're saying he was like I'm just kind of processing too with this and telling what we all know is going on but that we're not all talking about and I I was kind of thinking too about the ways that those generations were dealing with trauma and his grandma she didn't talk about it at all and like, didn't talk to her. So in my brain, I'm like, she didn't talk to her daughter about it at all. So her daughter is Casey's mom, or Casey's K- mom. <laughs> and then Casey doesn't talk to his mom about it because, and like his mom was taught, like, don't talk about that. His, but his his mom was like, you know, what the problem is, is that we're not politically organized. That's ca- kind of how she took that. And so she really wanted to help him fight against racism. But it's his grandma that he's actually able to talk about some of these things that his grandma couldn't even talk about with her daughter, but is kind of almost able to talk to Casey about it. And she sees what's going on. Like you can tell that she's been through it. And so like, she's 
she's more of like a person that can be loving to Casey, even though she couldn't do that with her own daughter. And then I think when I just like reading the the generations between the three of them, I just it was like a very clear example of how intergenerational trauma works. Even if we can make strides in these economic ways, or it seemed like they were making economic strides, how if you're not dealing with the trauma in an emotional way, like you're gonna keep passing it down in different forms and different ways, but it would keep passing it down. To talk more about his grandma, one time he asked her about his weight Mm -hmm. and whether or not he was too heavy. And she said he was just heavy enough. (laughs) And he asked her to explain what she meant by that. And she said that he was heavy enough for everything you need to be heavy for. Mm -hmm. It's on page 60. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask, what do you think she meant by that? Yeah, I don't know. This was this was when he was staying at her house, right? And he would go with the older women at church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, around that time. I, I, I think when I read it, I was just thinking she was saying kind of society. You're going to be treated really bad and you kind of need to have like a thicker skin. And maybe yeah. weight is actually like a protective barrier to the outside world people might not want to fuck with you because like you know they just might see you as like a little bigger than your heart's sensitive but like they'll see you as like like not a a big black man yeah is perceived as a threat though true that yeah but I think she was saying he's a sensitive boy going through things and but it kind of does put on like this armor that maybe he's a little bit he's like a little more tough and like maybe you can't mess with him and things like that yeah yeah okay oh sorry no but he was also very aware of like the way that his body would be seen as a threat and like he talks about that a lot yeah Yeah. and talks about like the ways that he would go out of his way to make sure that it wasn't like that yeah his grandma on page 61 said some things ain't meant to be remembered Mm -hmm. and this is a similar theme to something that came up in their eyes were watching god by zora neale hurston which is a Mm -hmm. book that i read for last season's lit review Mm -hmm. in the first line of her book she on the first page she talks about how women forget everything they don't want to remember and remember everything they don't want to forget as opposed to men whose wishes are on ships at a distance mocking them (laughs) what what do you think of that line I think it's a it's just a it's a coping strategy to get through stuff yeah. yeah, especially women, especially black women. They're as a woman, like we have our own oppressions, and this is why intersectionality is important. And then black yeah. women, you have your own oppressions on top of that. And like, if if like that is going on, and you're fighting those those like different layers at multiple times, you have different filters going on through your head that's taking up so much space. And plus, everybody is like, or like most, a lot of groups are oppressing you. It is just yeah. like a yeah. big coping mechanism. So I just have to keep kind of moving and surviving. If I like dwell on stuff, I might crumble. Yeah. One of the cutest parts of the book, I thought, was Layman's friendship with Lafon. <laughs> how they would talk about Black abundance mm-hmm. and how things were meager <laughs> when they like thought it was like weak or whatever. <laughs> I really related to that friendship. I think I have a lot of Latinx friends in my life that are like my Lafon. Mm-hmm. And I think being a person of color in the U.S., especially a Black person, is an experience of uncovering what Black abundance Mm -hmm. or, in our case, Latinx abundance exists within you Mm -hmm. or that you create within your community that white people have tried to tell you doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I also really related to their friendship, too. and, And I just, yeah, I love how they hype each other up. 
And, like, mm-hmm. I think this is, like, also, too, you, like, hype each other up because you really are the shit. And you're, like, going through all this stuff. And then you just, you also have this whole culture. And so you get to share all of that, too. But then at the same time, you you also get to make fun of, like, white people. Like, they did that a lot. And that cracked me mm-hmm. up. And it's, like, thing that I also participated in and just being, like, can you believe this ridiculousness? And, like, you can't say it, yeah. like, in front of when it's going on because like you know that would be yeah. me support and like I don't want to get my client supported <laughs> but um but like just but being able to go back to your friends after and be like what the f was that or like even yeah. people that work in this field that are white and some of the things that, will, <laughs> that they will yeah. do the, I don't know if they're doing it you know like <laughs> microaggressions that you experience and just having yeah. friends there to laugh with you about it and like make fun of it I really related to that yeah yeah I I felt like their friendship showed how you in the book you do see that he struggles living under white supremacy mm-hmm. but also how he overcomes it and I think not overcomes it because it's the structure that we live with like I was saying <laughs> but it, he resists white supremacy by loving himself, by loving Black culture, by loving Black people. And I think that that's super powerful. This, like, just not internalizing Black inferiority is, is critical. And I, I just know that, you know, deconstructing similar ideas that I was fed about what it meant to be a Latina woman I know I had to unlearn. So yeah, yeah, I just, I, yeah, I appreciated him sharing how he resisted. And I I found it really powerful, especially because him and Lasan went to, it was a predominantly white school and -hmm. and they dealt with a lot of racism. That was really awful. Really awful. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised in the South, but it was still probably like the late eighties, early nineties, really bad. Yeah. Yeah. I also appreciated his take on the importance of cultural representation. So on page 72, he says that meant we knew white folk. That meant white folk did not know us. Oh, I like this part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where he was talking about how part of how he realized what it meant to be black in the U.S. is through TV and movie representations where if there ever was a black person, they were a white person's assistant or just like, a uh, periphery character mm-hmm. whose only importance was their relationship to this white protagonist. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And just related so much to mm-hmm. the burden of knowing about white people when yeah. you know about white people. Yeah. Or particularly have an interest in learning about them and their history. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you still have to be fluent in it though, because that's the that's yeah. the way that the country is set up. So right. it, I really like that part. Yeah, where you have to be fluent in white people and white culture. They don't know anything about you. And like on the one hand, that was like the black abundance was that we have like this yeah. whole thing that they don't even know about that they can't even comprehend. Yeah. So 
back on your comment about the South. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I want to push back on this. So I want to go into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm from Northern California. I moved to the Southwest. I'm dating somebody from Louisiana. So just recently after graduating law school and moving to Tucson, I've come to think more about the Deep South and I appreciated his mom talking about how, quote, people outside of Mississippi don't know what to do with us when we're excellent. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just think it's really important as people who did grow up. Well, actually, no, you grew up in Southern California, but, but California is still yeah, yeah, yeah. a different culture mm-hmm. than the Deep South. And totally. even just the way that history is explained to us, the narrative is that people in the North were, for example more likely to be in solidarity with black folks who were trying to be free. That's mm-hmm. not true. No, yeah. The racism just looks different. In it totally world. does. And it's like, it's actually a more dangerous type in a way sometimes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking about Bay Area liberals and how sometimes it's, it feels, it's easier to grapple with somebody who just says something racist to your face because you just are automatically oriented to what their politics are. But right. And San Francisco liberals, especially those who know the vocabulary, who are college mm-hmm. educated and can kind of pass as leftists or mm-hmm. someone who's an accomplice in ending white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's kind of more of a mindfuck. Yeah. Well, so I know Clarence Thomas is whack in like all of the ways, but one of the things he says that I really fucked with or that really resonated, I didn't really fuck with it, but like what really resonated <laughs> was that he said that the racism that he experienced at Yale was worse than what oh, he had no. experienced in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt that because it was, I, I also went through my own unpacking racism at Yale and that was the whole journey of white people constantly telling me that I was quote unquote, an affirmative action student, even though I was objectively more excellent than they were. (laughs) Yeah, no, literally. I mean, that happens to him too in this book too in college and they accuse him of plagiarism multiple times. Right. No, I've been, he talks about, I've been literally like rewriting everything I ever, like he, I've been writing since I was a little kid. Yeah. I write better than you. Right. Right. No, but I, I am glad that you actually went back to this to this topic because did you ever read Derek Bell too? Yeah, he talks about this too, where like, just like you said, you kind of know where you stand with people in the South and not, I'm, I'm obviously overgeneralizing. I'm sorry, everybody. Yeah. Um, but but this is this, like, let's say it's from the North or like uh, or from the, <laughs> the coastal elites or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, 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 I yeah. think it's worse because it's, it is, it's very dangerous in the way that like, I don't think that they know that or they don't think of themselves as racist, but they are perpetuating a lot of racist things and keeping a lot of those structures in place and actually still have very violent racism, but it becomes state racism because, so it becomes state racism because, for example, like have a lot of people right now that just want to get rid of homeless people. It, it, you know what I'm saying? And it, it's really state violence when you have a lot of, like the homeless people are black and brown and it's just like the state, it just becomes state violence and it just gets covered with the veneer because they're not, they're not saying, oh, I hate brown people or, oh, I hate black people or they're not saying that. But it, so it, I think people can, I think they can get away with a lot of actual state violence by being like public safety or, you know, like it's what the Clintons did. It's the super predator like myth. Yeah. And Oh, I'm yes. fighting crime, but oh, why is the only crime you're fighting? Like, <laughs> yeah. 
So I think it's it's very dangerous in a way when it's people that don't think they are, but they're actually attacking one community over another. Yeah, I think it's really dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's like Martin Luther King talking about the white moderate. It's Mm -hmm. it's the same problem. Mm -hmm. The white moderate or even I'm even thinking about like not just the white moderate that is like, oh, like, let's have some peace here. You know, like, don't go out and I don't know what this accent is from, but like, don't go outside and like, like they're like, don't. Though that's like, I feel like, but those people. Don't set things on fire. Don't. Those like, people, yeah. Walk you, to jail. <laughs> yeah, you guys are, there's traffic right now because you're, you're doing a protest. But like, actually the people that are, oh no, like, I love, like, I'm not racist or I'm not homophobic, but then they like will back policies that are, or like they are afraid of sending their kids to a certain school. So that school will never get funding. And so it's like this thing's, you know what I'm saying? It's like that stuff that I think they help. Well, it's like Berkeley, Marin, the barrier is really racially segregated in a lot of ways. And even if white people in that area generally vote Democratic, in this day and age where a Democrat oversaw the caging of children, what does that even mean? Yeah. Yeah, right? Totally. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm like, I'm really mad. on page 86 he says that telling the truth is way different than finding the truth do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I get what he was saying here. Like expressing yeah. how you feel, telling your truth is something that you could do while also not doing the work of unpacking your exactly. past trauma and like actually finding the truth of your past experiences. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, exactly. And both can be hard. Like, it can be hard to express your feelings, especially especially when you've just been trying to survive and you've gone through really bad stuff. And so all you needed, you were just trying to cope, so you weren't trying to talk about anything. So talking about stuff is hard, but then, like, really delving back in and be like, well, why am I holding on to this resentment here? And like, how is that affecting me in this other place? And it is really different. They are really different things. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so to end... Oh, no, we're I won't... <laughs> yeah i have an early bedtime (laughs) i mean okay for anybody listening it's she's an hour ahead of me because i'm in california and she's arizona took a different time than us (laughs) yeah arizona uh, the time difference thing really fucked with me yeah it's really confusing that half the year it's the same as psc and then the other half is that happened to me with when I had my case out in Arizona. Yeah. It was like the court time, so half, half oh. it was like my time in the, in California and the other half it wasn't. I was like, I really had to remember I was freaking out about it because sometimes I was appearing not in person, but over telephone. So I like really couldn't get the time wrong. But anyways, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> miss you. Um, what were we talking about to end it? Page 88. America seems filled with violent people who like causing people pain. But mm-hmm. hate when those people tell them that pain hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I love that part. It's very true. It's just, 
it's like what we were saying too about the protests it's, yeah it's like those people yeah, yeah they're like if you ask them like, when like I just remember I keep thinking about it I'm like thinking about the BLM protest that we had out here yeah and people would be like oh yeah like I'm down like people shouldn't be getting shot with the cops blah 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 but then they would complain right. about like being minorly inconvenienced or like oh well like why does everything have to come back to that topic or like you know what I'm saying and then, <laughs> Um, you made it that way yeah <laughs> Uh-oh. oh my god it's like why are you talking about race why did you create this racial hierarchy okay. yeah no it was it's very true and I think I feel like I can really see it right now well thank you so much Shayhan for coming on to the lit review and I hope that you can be back on the podcast to talk about the really dope legal work that you do as well. I want to talk about everything. I'm, I just miss you. Oh, I miss you too. I know. So much. And, and Mocha, I see. Is that Mocha or is that a... Yeah. No, it's really big right now. Okay. And it's so big, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I'm keeping you up late. Thanks for accommodating yeah. my crazy schedule. <laughs> oh, no. Of course. I get it. Okay. Well, you have to stop recording, I think. Oh, stop recording.